Well, I want to first invite you to turn over to Psalm number 16 for this, I think the third week now in our new series in the Psalms. Uh, I want to also invite those of you who may be visiting with us, maybe you don't have a copy of the Bible of your own. Uh, I, want to, I want to offer you a copy that we've provided for you. Uh, they're here at the center of each aisle, down at the end of the aisle. There are lots of folks sitting on the end of the aisle, as there typically uh, always are. It's a nice, convenient sp- spot to sit, but it comes with a job. If you're sitting on this end of the aisle, look down the aisle, see if anybody's flagging you down who needs a copy of the Bible, pass a Bible down to them. If you're here and, and not a Christian, I especially want to welcome you. Thank you for being here with us. We pray each week that God will bring people to us who are interested and learning more about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And, uh, and at this point in our service, what we've come to, what we, what we do each week is a time where we try to understand what God has said to us, where we spend a, an extended time picking apart part of his word. Uh, what we do here in our church is we, we pick sections of the Bible, usually referred to as books of the Bible, and we try to move through them uh, in order to try to understand them on their terms And what we've entered into now is a season where we're going to be picking apart one of the most beloved, maybe the most beloved section of the whole Bible, known as the Psalms. It's a collection of hymns to God written by God's people thousands of years ago. And one of the things that we've said, one of the first things that you need to know about Christianity, if you're exploring here this morning, is that Christians believe that everything that exists exists because there is a God who made it, a God who exists by his nature, who can't not exist, on whom everything else depends, and that this God has chosen by his own design to make everything that is. That this God, who's a reason that there's anything instead of nothing, is also personal, He's not some ambiguous force, some sort of world spirit that weaves itself through everything that is. No, he's a person. He's different from us, but he's personal like we are. And that this God has created everything that is and especially has created you and me because he wants a relationship with those that he's made. What the Psalms do for us is help us know how to relate to the God that made us. They help us understand what it is to, to, to know him. They show us why we ought to relate to him and then how to do it. And they do this through some of the most beautiful poetry that's ever been written. The Psalms are all poems. Poems aren't like letters. They're not like stories. Other parts of the Bible give us, give us uh, stories with vibrant characters and interesting plots. That's how you figure out what a story means. You, you try to understand what the character's all about or you, you try to see what's happening to them. Follow the action. You understand its meaning through knowing its plot. In a letter, you understand what a letter means by trying to follow the train of thought. You usually, usually somebody's got some argument they're trying to make and you want to understand their ideas and how they all fit together. With poems, things are different though. They aren't organized by thoughts, thought by thought, idea by idea. They aren't organized event by event like a story is. With poems, you have to come at them a little differently. They may not be organized by thoughts or by events, but they are They are full of themes. And in those themes, they're also full of images that help us to unpack those themes. You can't always move through them starting in verse 1 and moving all the way to to the end of the psalm to understand what the theme is. But the key to its meaning is figuring out what the theme is and how the images 
Help us unpack it. So that's what I want to do this morning with Psalm 16. We're going to try to find the theme and we're going to try to understand how the images that the the psalmist gives us uh, unpack that theme for us. Poetry, unique among all the other kinds of writing that are in the Bible, poetry is here meant to help us taste something, to actually experience at the level of our hearts ideas that that are communicated in other places in other ways. The, the, The Psalms are meant to help us taste them. So we want to try to experience it this morning, try to taste it. I don't necessarily want to break it down and try to analyze all its parts. I want us to taste it and to see through it. So we're going we're gonna to move forward, trusting God to help us. The psalm that we've come to this morning, Psalm 16, is, uh, is often known as a psalm of confidence. It's a praise to God for something that's true about him. But in a psalm like this one, what the psalmist is praising God for are all the reasons that the psalmist can trust him. In a psalm of confidence, the, the writer is expressing the reasons this God is worth trusting instead of all the other options that are out there. So we want to try to track with him as he builds his celebration of a God who's trustworthy in a way that nothing else is. We're gonna, I want to begin by reading it, and then I'll say a couple more words about how we're going to approach it this morning. If you found Psalm 16, would you please stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read Psalm 16 is known as a miktum. We don't know what that means. Some sort of, probably some sort of term associated with their worship. And it's a psalm of David. And here's what he says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to try to trace this theme with you, first of all, by by looking for what the psalmist wants. It's the psalm of David. Behind it is his expression that God has provided for him exactly what he's looking for. We want to understand what was he looking to God for. I want to make it clear what he wants and try to connect that with what we want. Then we want to see where what he wants is found. 
He points us to God. I want, to, I want you to see how and why he does that. Then we'll talk about how it's possible that God provides him with what he wants and finish off by trying to understand how we might seek for ourselves what the psalmist wants and seeks and finds in this psalm. I want to begin by making sure it's clear what the main theme is, what it is that David wants from God through this psalm. Maybe you noticed at the very beginning, the whole thing starts out with a plea. He pleads with God, preserve me. Oh God, he tells God, in you, I take refuge. There's one of the images, the first image that we come to, an image of refuge. You know what that means, right? You've experienced that. Think of a storm. Maybe that's one of the easiest ways to connect with it. Think of what you do in a storm. What are you looking for? Yesterday, uh, I was out on my front porch with my kids and it started pouring down rain. I don't know if it rained like this everywhere in the city. It poured in my neighborhood a couple miles from here. Uh, out of nowhere. So we were out there watching it. We like to watch storms. They're, they're interesting and fun. But then out of nowhere, the lightning started popping. And I don't mean just in the distance with thunder. I mean, we were watching it. We saw it strike a house right across the street from us and like two houses down from our front porch. So at that point, I decided to stop being a negligent father and take advantage of the nice, dry, and safe home that God had provided my family. We went inside. We went inside to take refuge from a storm that could have hurt us. David is crying out for a refuge to preserve him from being swept away or crushed by whatever he was facing. David wants, the first thing we know about what David wants here, he wants security. He wants safety. The same theme gets picked up later. Verse 8, he talks about setting the Lord always before him. Think of a shield bearer in ancient warfare. You've seen some of these old Roman, pictures of old Roman soldiers, how they used to go into battle. They'd have a wall of shields. And then behind them would be the soldiers with, the, with their weapons. But the shields would walk forward like this impenetrable wall. They would just mow down anything in front of it, blow it back. David sets the Lord in front of him, a shield or a protector that goes before him. Then he says, I've, I've set the Lord at my at my right hand, think of him as a lawyer who stands for you, an advocate who makes a case for you, who, who represents you before a judge. David is looking to God for refuge. The Lord beside me, he says, I will not be shaken. He wants and he has security and stability. That's the first thing you need to know about what the psalmist wants. But, but this is where it merges, that first want merges with another theme. That's essential to see. In verse 9, we see this security theme, his craving for refuge, merge with joy, with gladness, with rejoicing. Look at verse 9. I mentioned that poems don't usually break down like an argument, like letters where you've got an idea, 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 therefore idea. But sometimes they do come with connecting words, and this psalm does have one that we've got to pay attention to. In verse 9, we get a therefore. So I've set the Lord before me, he says in verse 8. Because he's at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. I'm secure. Therefore, because I'm secure, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. And he keeps on talking about joy through the end of the psalm. He celebrates the fullness of joy that comes in God's presence, verse 11. The pleasure forevermore that's found at God's right hand. Two themes merge into one. Security breeds joy. 
put together, what does the psalmist want? What is he confident that he has? Lasting joy. That's the way I'm choosing to describe it. Lasting joy. Security in which joy thrives and grows and expands forever. Joy thrives in safety. There's a freedom and a gladness that comes from knowing you're protected beyond threat. A few years ago, my family visited uh, St. Louis, which we love for all the free entertainment that it offers. There's all sorts of free museums there. One of them is not free, but probably our favorite, the City Museum. I don't know if anybody's been there. City Museum? Anybody been to the City Museum? That's a lot of you have. The City Museum is really not a museum. It is somebody's crackpot idea for a, 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 a playground for adults made of junk. It's unbelievable. We were completely blown away. It's all this repurposed stuff, including a big school bus that teeters over the edge of a building, a big jet plane that hangs about eight stories high that you climb to through tunnels made only of like chicken wire, really, really strong chicken wire. That's, that's, that's the way I'm imagining it. It's not chicken wire. This is metal, this is some sort of metal structure. It doesn't give when you climb it. But So my, at the time, three-year-old, I guess, uh, three-year-old and I climbed all over that. We were all over that. Um, and we were having joy, though suspended over certain death, eight stories in the sky with just metal wiring between us and a fall. But we had complete joy and gladness because we were safe. Like they had done their work well. These, these tunnels that we were climbing through weren't going anywhere. Our gladness was tied to our safety. And it always is. True joy always depends on safety. All of us want this, not just the psalmist. All of us want lasting joy because we've all known joys that don't last, haven't we? So much of what we enjoy isn't safe or secure at all. I thought my house was a nice, safe refuge from the storm yesterday. It was, in a way, in all the ways that really count. But during the middle of it, that downpour, I started hearing a little drip, drip. I thought my faucet wasn't turned all the way off. I went to the faucet. It was turned all the way off. I looked up, and from the light above my sink, drip, drip. I get a lot of joy in my house until I realize how fragile it actually is, how much of a pain it actually is, how much work it actually requires. It is not lasting joy. Perhaps you've raised adult children, children to adulthood, You've known the joy that you had in their innocence and their sweet trust in you broken when they pushed you away. Maybe there's a project that you enjoy, you've known, you've enjoyed as long as you thought it was going well, only to have your advisor show you it's not. I mean, just hypothetically, that never happened to me, of course. (laughs) All of us have suffered through unfulfilled dreams. All of us have lost loved ones. Our lives are full of joy. But spread over the whole course of a life, they're just as full of loss. Last year, I think I've mentioned this book before. You guys have to forgive me for that. But last year, I read a really interesting memoir a friend recommended me called H is for Hawk. It was a woman in England living in Cambridge who took up birding, like hawk training and hunting, uh, partly to cope with her father's death. 
and the pain that she was experiencing. The, the memoir is about how to you know, catch rabbits with hawks, but it's also about loss and how to cope with it and what it feels like and what it does to us. And one of the quotes in this book that strikes me as so wise and so true to life is this. There is a time, she writes, in life when you expect the world to be always full of new things. And then comes a day when you realize that it's not how it'll be at all. You see that life will become a thing made of holes, absences, losses, things that were there and are no longer. And you realize, too, that you have to grow around in between the gaps, though you can put your hand out to where things were and feel that tense, shining dullness of the space where the memories are. The psalmist wants lasting joy. We do too. And this psalm is him celebrating that he's found it. Where? Where is lasting joy found? That's the heart of the psalm. This point we've come to now is the main thing I hope you'll remember from this time together. Where is lasting joy found? That's the theme of the psalm. It's what he wants. Where does he find it? Look at verse 2 with me. He's begun his psalm with a cry for refuge. He ends his psalm with confidence that he's secure in a joy that won't end. Where did he find it? Verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There is only one source for joy that won't be crushed or run dry. See, you only know, this is, get with me now, pay attention right now, and I'm just going to unpack this idea for the rest of the time. You only know lasting joy when what you love most is what you can't lose. The only thing you can love and not lose is God himself. The only true joy is a joy that lasts. And the only thing that lasts is God. And that means their only source for true joy is God. All else will be stripped away. And that's where the psalmist looks throughout the middle of the psalm. He gives us his, his statement, the source of his lasting joy, the only refuge that he looks to in life. I have no good in anything apart from you. That's verse two. The next verses just make the same point through different language. Verse four, he uses a contrast. He points us towards other options, what it would look like to seek good somewhere else. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I'm not going there. I won't look for any other God. That's the other option. Think of a false God as anything you trust for refuge or rest or joy that's, that's good apart from him. Anywhere you look for good apart from him, there's the false God he has in mind. Ours these days will look different than theirs did, but they're still there. Anywhere you look for good apart from God, that's another God. For them, it looked like control. They wanted to control physical elements around them. They knew they depended on rain for crops to come in. They deified the rain and worshipped it and tried to get it on their side. They knew that they couldn't control storms that were too big for them. They deified the God of the sea and prayed to him to give them calm weather. 
They knew that they needed something beyond themselves to have children, to have, to have crops that come in. They knew they needed fertility. They, they looked, they deified fertility and looked to those goddess, gods and goddesses for what they wanted. They were trying to control the terms of their life. That's what they did through running after other gods. They wanted some good and some protection on their terms. What David is saying is that if you look for good anywhere else, it's just going to break your heart. The sorrows of those who run after another God just multiply. He makes this point negatively in verse 4. Then he he turns around and makes the same point positively in verses 5 and 6. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He is what I have. You hold my lot. You're everything to me. Love of this God and only this God is the only way to avoid heartbreak and no lasting joy. That's why he says, you're my portion. I don't have any other. You're my cup. I've got no other. You're my lot. I have no other. The lines have fallen for me, he says, in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There's, a, there's an image we need to unpack. That doesn't immediately make sense to me. I don't know about you. He's referring to God as, as his land allotment. In Israel, that was huge. When Israel moved into the promised land, each tribe got a certain plot of that land. And each person would have part of what his tribe got. And they would use that land to live. This is where they would raise their families, raise their crops. Make a, make a life for themselves. It was huge. And they measured out what each tribe got by lines. They would have like a, a piece of rope. It was a certain unit of measurement and they would just string it together line by line by line to see how much each person got. So what David is saying is not that he loves the land that he ended up with, but that, that God himself is what he ended up with. The lines have fallen him in pleasant places. He likes what he's got because what he's got is God. God is what has been measured out to him. David's not thanking God for a good inheritance. It's not like he's glad he ended up with a good plot of land and not a bad one, one that had nice water supply, one that had maybe a nice, beautiful view. This is not David with his feet up on the porch of his summer vacation home, thanking God about how well his life worked out for him. That's not what he's saying. He's just said in the, in, in the verse before that God is his portion. God is his cup. When he says the lines have fallen to him, when he says he's had a, a beautiful inheritance, he's talking about God still. The Lord is his portion. One scholar pointed to some background in David's own life for this verse that really helped me to connect with it. He pointed to 1 Samuel chapter 26. This is a part of, tells the story of David's life and how he came to power as Israel's king. And in that chapter, David is on the run for his life. David's rise is not an easy or pleasant one. It comes through fighting, through war, through an evil king who wanted him dead. And for many, many, uh, many, many years, months and years on the way to his becoming king, David actually had nothing. He lost everything that he had. He lived in caves on the run with his friends, even having to leave Israel altogether for a time just to stay alive. And in 1 Samuel 26, David reflects on what had been done to him by the people who wanted him dead. And listen to how he says it. They, he says, have driven me out this day 
that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, the inheritance of the Lord. And they said to me, go serve other gods. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? What David learned when everything in his life went dry was that all he really has and all he really needs is God. He found in God what was taken from him by the powers that be. And that's what he has in his mind when he writes, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And with him, I have a beautiful inheritance. What's he saying? Not that we don't enjoy good things in life. He's not saying that there's nothing good besides God himself. If what you take from that is that you can't enjoy a nice evening at home with your family or you can't enjoy a nice dinner with your friends or you can't enjoy the look of the mountains in the distance from the porch of the home where you're on vacation. He's not saying that. He's not saying we don't enjoy good things in life. He's saying that we don't enjoy them on their own as if they're separate from the God who gave them to us. He's saying that whatever good we enjoy in this life has to be part of the portion that is God. We have to love what's been given to us. Whatever specific thing we enjoy about life, we have to love what's been given to us because we love the one who gave it to us. It's not that the lines fell to me in a pleasant way. My life worked out great. Therefore, I love God. If I hadn't have ended up with everything I wanted, I wouldn't love God. That turns God into a means to an end. That's not the religion of the Bible. That's not the faith of this psalmist. No, you love the lines. The lines are pleasant, whatever they might be. The inheritance is beautiful, whatever it might be, because it's what God gave. Because it's an extension of his goodness. You love, it's not that you love the giver because of his gifts. You love the gifts because of the giver. A few years ago, we made the, we, we made the, the switch to allowing our young children to pick out presents for us on our birthdays. And other holidays it's been very interesting (laughs) I remember the first one I'll never forget the first time we did this it was my son my oldest son Walter he was maybe two or three at the time we took I took him to get a Mother's Day present for his mom and he chose for her on his own without any guidance from me a fly swatter and some kitchen shears which we use to this day to great effect very practical great present that he chose for his mama but the, but the bottom line of that gift for Lindsay was not what it actually was. It's who gave it to her. She loved that he chose that for her. That his mind at that time thought of this as something good for his mom to have. She loved the gift because of the giver. And that's what David has in his life. He loves what he has. The lines have fallen to him in a pleasant place because they're God's lines and he is his portion. Here's... Here's what that means. It means that, that, yes, of course, what God gives may be beautiful, genuinely beautiful on its own merits. Yes, a sunset is beautiful no matter what God you believe in. Yes, the mountains move us. Music thrills us. We love to eat delicious food. We enjoy the sweetness of friendship. There's something powerful about the grip of a little baby on your finger 
But we need to first and foremost see these things as beautiful because of who gives them to, to us, because of the love that behind the gift, the love of the giver. Here's how one of my favorite pastors from, the his, from, from church history has put this. This is an early sermon in the life of a man named Jonathan Edwards who pastored in America back in the 1700s. Here's the way he put it in one of his early sermons. It just always struck me. He talks about all the good things of life. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, the company of any or all earthly friends. He thinks on these and he says, these are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops. God is the ocean. Where do you find lasting joy? You find it when you love God who will never run dry and who can never end. So how is that possible? How is it possible to know and love this God, to have him as your own beautiful inheritance, to have him securely in a way that nothing can threaten? David points the way in verse 9 of Psalm 16. Remember what we said so far. David is secure in this lasting joy. Lasting joy comes when you're good, when your portion, when what you love can't be threatened. In other words, when you love God himself most of all. And the reason that David can find lasting joy in God himself comes in verse 9 and 10. He says in verse 9 that his flesh dwells secure. How does he know that? How is that possible? For, he says in verse 10, explaining himself, you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. The reason he can know lasting joy in God's presence is that he believes, he is confident that God won't leave him to death. Sheol is the word in Hebrew for the place of the dead. They didn't have a really full understanding of what happened to people who had died in the ancient world, in ancient Israelite religion. It's not talked about that much. It's talked about a lot more in the New Testament than it ever did in the Old Testament. They had this conception, though, of a place where souls live on after death. They thought of it just as the place of the dead and didn't know that much about it. They referred to it as Sheol. What David is saying is that I know my flesh dwells secure because you won't leave me there. You won't let your Holy One decay. In short, what he's, what he's saying, I think, if we follow what he, how he's unpacking this for us, lasting joy in God is only possible if God can give you himself forever. That's verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. Your right hand, that's where pleasure comes forevermore. If we're to know lasting joy, there's only one place we can find it. That is if we get to know and experience God forever. But to know and to enjoy God forever, I have to be set free from death. There is no other way. That's what David is saying in verse 10. David knows his Bible history. Who knows what texts he actually had to read. The community had been passing on the stories 
stories of where death came from. In the Bible's perspective, death is not natural. We're not all just part of some great cosmic circle of life where things have to die so that new things can live and let's just shrug our shoulders and move on and accept it. That's not the way the Bible sees death. The Bible sees death as an intruder, as an enemy, as an imposter that came into this world because we brought it here through our sin. The Bible understands death not just as the end of a life, but as separation from the only source of good and truth and beauty in the world, as separation from God. Yes, death separates us from this world. It separates us from our friends and from all that we love in this world. But fundamentally, what death is, is a separation from life. Life that's found only in the God who creates. And the Bible describes death as something we deserve. Because just like Adam and Eve, whose story is told in Genesis 3, each one of us has lived life now as if it were ours and not his. Each one of us, each day of our lives, have treated him as if he was not the one who gives us every breath, not the one who has a right to command us to own our lives and have our lives be used for his glory and not our own. We've treated him as if he hasn't been good to us, always providing for us everything we've needed at every step of the way. We have been ungrateful and negligent and pretended as if he's not there, and death is God giving us what we ask for. You want life without me? This is what it looks like. Death is what we deserve for our sin. And it sets the record straight. It corrects the lie that we tell about God. That he isn't the source of good and right and beauty and truth and life. That other things are more dependable than he is. Death is his final answer to us. No. Not true. So how can David be so confident that he won't be left in Sheol? How can David know that death won't be the final word on his life? How can he know that he has a secure refuge and that in that refuge he can know joy forever? I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know what David was looking to how he had so much confidence giving what he knew at this time in history. But I know, I know what God did to make David's vision possible. One reason we know is that one of the first Christian sermons ever preached was preached on this passage. I want to show you something. If you have your Bible, flip over to Acts chapter 2. This is where Peter, one of Jesus' first followers and best friends, explained to those who had gathered in Jerusalem after Jesus had died and risen again, where he stands publicly in front of anyone who will listen and explains to them what Jesus was for, what he did, why he had to come and die and rise again. When he makes this confession, when he preaches the gospel, he uses Psalm 16. This is what he says. I'm going to begin in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, Peter preached, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, Peter's saying, David wrote about Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter preaches, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb was with us to this day. He wasn't talking about himself, not really, not yet. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. How is it possible for David, for us, to know lasting joy in God's presence forever. Only if God can save us from Sheol. And that is what he's done. He has conquered the grave by going through it. By submitting himself to what we deserved. He offers to everyone, no matter what you've done, a promise of life through Christ who took your death and offers you his life. All you have to do is repent. In other words, in the words of Psalm 16, all you've got to do is stop running after other gods. Stop looking for good anywhere and everywhere else. Stop adding sorrow to sorrow and trust him instead. That's how it's possible. I want to finish with just a brief encouragement to you. How you can seek the lasting joy that David says he's got. David is clearly not just writing about what's going to happen at the end of time. He's not writing just about the new heavens and the new earth that Shocker read to us about earlier in the service. He's also experiencing this joy now. He sees God as a present inheritance for him that's beautiful. How do we seek that experience in our own lives? I want to just point you to two things and leave you to reflect on them yourselves and to talk about them with your friends. How do we seek this joy in this life as David did? First, look for God in what you love. Look for God in what you love. That's how you can seek it now. David's not talking about self-denial. When he says, I have no good apart from you, he's not saying, therefore, we just shouldn't experience anything except God. Let's all go and, and, and hide ourselves in some little closet where we deprive ourselves and our physical senses of anything that might distract us from God and just pray. That's not what he's saying. David's life was full of all sorts of wonderful things that God made for him to enjoy. And ours should be too. It's not either God or good things of life. It's gone through the good things of life. Good things as gifts of, even extensions of God's goodness. Landscapes, he made them. Glorify him, not just because they're beautiful, but because of what it took him to provide them. Tastes of delicious food. You know, he could have made you a cow. You could be subsisting now on grass. You get to taste cookies, 
ice cream. I'm going to stop right there. Think about it. When you eat delicious food, think about the fact that God has equipped you to enjoy this. That is an extension of his goodness that he imagined what that would taste like and then pulled it off. That's amazing. The colors of fall are on their way. When you see those leaves, you shouldn't just be, oh, that's interesting. Shrug of the shoulders as you drive past them. You should think, how did he do that? Who is this God that he could not only work with those colors, but imagine them and provide them for us to see? At our best, we take colors that are given to us and we rearrange them. At our best, at our most creative and artistic. He imagined them and produced them from nothing. So these good things that we enjoy, there's a way to enjoy them as an extension of him that drives us to praise and worship of the God who imagined and gave them to us. And when that's what we enjoy about what we, about what we love, when we're not just marveling at its beauty or complexity, but worshiping the one who could come up with it, we don't have to keep enjoying those specific evidences of his goodness to keep having fun. Because we trust that when he takes away what we were enjoying and we no longer get to enjoy it, he will give us some new extension of his joy, exactly what we need. I love the way Augustine puts this in his Confessions, one of my favorite books ever written. He talks a lot about this, about finding evidence of God's goodness in the good things of the world. He, he encourages us to stick to him who made you, he said. Stand with him and you'll stand fast. Rest in him and you'll be at rest. The good which you love is from him. But only as it's related to him is it good and sweet. Otherwise, it's going to become bitter. For all that comes from him is unjustly loved if he has been abandoned. And here's the reason Augustine felt that way. And this is the second thing I want to encourage you with. How to seek this lasting joy in life. Well, first you look, you look for God and what you love. But then, just as important an opportunity for you is to look for God through what you've lost. Look for God through what you've lost. Here's Augustine again. Yes, all of these good things come from him and the good which you love is from him, so stick to him, rest in him, enjoy these good things as a way of enjoying him. But let these transient things be the ground on which my soul praises you, but let it not become stuck in them and glued to them. Why? Augustine says these things pass along the path of things that move towards non-existence. There's no point of rest here. They flee away and cannot be followed. Wherever the human soul turns itself other than to you, it is fixed in sorrows. Remember that anything other than God runs dry. It's not a chance that you'll lose it. There's a guarantee that you'll lose it. And though loss is painful, it's always an opportunity for clarity. The book of Job is all about this. Job was a man who had everything that a man could want. The story begins with the evil one coming to God saying, you know that Job only praises you because you've given him everything. Why wouldn't he praise you? Look how wonderful his life is. Look at the lines and how they fall into him. He wouldn't praise you if you took it away. The whole book is God proving that's not true, that he's worthy of praise in himself for who he is, not just for what he gives Lindsay reminded me earlier this week that Psalm 16 really came onto our radar about 20 years ago at my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. My grandmother 
stood in front of all our, our extended family who were there to celebrate them this wonderful party back in the late 90s. She stood and she read from this psalm. She read, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. My inheritance is beautiful to me. And she meant it. She was focused, I think, on lines and pleasant places that had shown up in her life through the good things that God had given her, her marriage, her children, her grandchildren. She was motivated by genuine gratitude for what God had given her. With 20 years of hindsight, though, it's the other pieces to this psalm that stick with me. Nothing God had given her at that stage of her life was hers to keep. Nothing was stable or secure on its own. Her life proved that out over the next 20 years. She lost an adult child. She lost her husband. She lost her home. She lost her independence and almost lost her mind before she ultimately lost her life last year. One of the last conversations I had with her was the first Christmas that she spent in the nursing home. She told me, we were talking about her experience of it all, almost 20 years after that wedding anniversary where she stood and read Psalm 16, she told me, nothing ever stays the same. But he is with me. She's one of the main reasons I'm a Christian today, her influence in my life. She showed me and then she lived out the message of this psalm, the only true joy is lasting joy. Lasting joy is only found in God. He and he alone is the eternal refuge of all who trust in him as she did, as David did. Will you? Father, none of us will answer yes to that question apart from your spirit's work in us. You must do it all. You must accomplish death and resurrection through Jesus you must give us faith to believe in it through your spirit protect us by David's words I pray from putting our hearts onto things that won't last and give us faith that will for your name's sake amen